bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's potter's field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts, as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here is our host, investigative history writer Michael T. Keene. Thank you very much, Norma Jean, and this is Michael Keene, and we are Talking Heart Island. One quick thing before we begin, we've been asked, how can you pick up a signed copy of Heart Island book uh, and the Heart Island audiobook? And you may do so by simply logging on to our website, michaeltkeene.com. How exactly did bodies end up at Heart Island? Their first stop for many, many years was Bellevue Hospital. By the 19th century, the Bellevue Morgue had become an official repository of recently deceased New Yorkers. Since Bellevue had become the first official city morgue, any unclaimed bodies along with a burial permit for the deceased were transferred to Bellevue Hospital. The hospital's morgue quickly became the major processing hub for a growing population of deceased, unknown New Yorkers. If a body was not claimed by family or friends within 24 hours from the time they received notification by mail of the death, the New York City Department of Hospitals was legally authorized to allow burial at Hart Island. Our very special guest today has a, a very interesting connection to Bellevue Hospital. Uh, her name is Danielle Offrey. Uh, Danielle is a, a practicing internist in New York City. She's also an essayist, an editor, an author, and a musician. Uh, she is attending physician at Bellevue Hospital and clinical professor of medicine at New York University School of Medicine. She is the author of several books, including Singular Intimacies, Becoming a Doctor at Bellevue, Medicine in Translation, Journeys with My Patients, and her most recent, What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear. And Dr. Ofri, thank you very much for being our guest today. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, the first question that I have, and I've been thinking about this for a while, how do you find the time to do all this? <laughs> well, well, I don't do it all at once. Um, and I think you're a little overly generous in calling me a musician. I, I take cello lessons, but I wouldn't quite say I'm a 
still I'm a musician, I'm a cello student. Uh, I try to eliminate all the unnecessary things like shopping or keeping up to date with TV shows or anything like that and, and just stick with the things that are important. You know, I also failed to mention uh, that you're a mother, and, and that must take quite a bit of time, doesn't it? That does, too. I have three teenagers, mm-hmm. and uh, they take up a lot of uh, mental energy, shall we say. Right. Um, tell us how you got into the practice of medicine. Was this something that kind of ran in the family, so to speak? Uh, not at all. My entire family are teachers. Everyone's in the education system. And I always, you know, I liked my dog. I wanted to be a vet as a kid. And then when I got to high school, if you liked science, you were going to be a doctor. That was just what it was. And I had no idea what it is that doctors did or what scientists did, but I kind of went along with the crew and kind of planned my life around becoming a doctor. And then when I got to college, I ended up at McGill University in Montreal, mainly because I had a very late application deadline. I didn't know I was getting into a British-style all-science education, but there it turned out, if you like science, you're going to become a scientist. You know, only you know technicians became doctors. And, and then I was really confused what to do. Well, I learned about these combined degree programs, MD, PhD. I thought, okay, I'll do that, and then I'll figure it out. And so I ended up at NYU because I wanted to be in New York um, and did the MD, PhD program with kind of a full plan to go into uh, become a researcher. But then I did my internship at Bellevue and completely fell in love with the people, the stories, and stayed in general medicine. And that's kind of where I am now. What made you fall in love with Bellevue? It was it is the most fascinating place to be. There is um, never a dull moment. People come from all over. Uh, you meet people with all sorts of just interesting life histories and stories and Nothing's routine, and it's just so varied. And you can you can do something. You know, the flip side of chaos is, is freedom, and so you can you know move between the edges and help patients out and, and things they need. And people are very appreciative, and you can you can do a lot even with limited resources. You're an internist. Um, what do internists do? So I'm a general doctor. It's a kind of a fancy name for a GP, mm-hmm. but yeah, all, all comers, but, but not children. Technically, GPs would, would see children as well or be a family doctor. I am you know, a general doctor for adults. So, you know, all comers, everything you've got, diabetes, hypertension, obesity, depression, heart disease, emphysema, job physical, you know, all those things, you, you come to our kind of practice. The, um, as I understand uh, Bellevue, there's several different areas of, of the hospital, right? I mean, there's the psychiatric ward. There is the... Go ahead. It's huge. So, so there's a hospital for inpatients, of which there's a psychiatric ward and a surgical ward and a medical ward, neurology, all these things, obstetrics, pediatrics, that's all inpatient, people who are admitted. Then we have a large clinic system, outpatient, and that's when people go to the doctor. So we have a medical clinic where the biggest clinic but, you know, nephrology clinic and, um, you know, GYN clinic, obstetrics clinic, all, all the outpatient cardiology clinics. And then we also have an emergency room, also quite large and, and, and well-known, which also has a level one trauma center. So we can sort of take all comers as well. So we have many parts within a large campus. Give us a sense of the size of Bellevue. Um, 
So we now have about 800 beds in the hospital. It used to be more than 1,000, but as medicine is modernized and much, many inpatient things become outpatient, many hospitals have shrunk some of their beds. So it's a, but still 800 beds is a big hospital. Um, uh, in terms of outpatient visits, we have probably half a million outpatient visits per year. Um, so that's very busy. Um, I don't know numbers for the ER, but it's always busy in the emergency room at Bellevue. So it's a hot, hopping, happening place. <laughs> Did you ever have a, the opportunity, if that's the right word, to be at the morgue? Um, I have been to the medical examiner uh, morgue, which is just next door, um, where you sort of unexplained deaths go. Um, in the Bellevue morgue, per se, I have not been down there. But you know where it is. It's down the basement. <laughs> they're all down. down the, they're all down in the they're basement. All, they're all down in the basement. That's, that's for sure. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, you're the author of several books in different titles, but is there a common theme that runs through your writings? Would you say? Well, I'm most fascinated about kind of what makes people tick. I'm interested in my patients' lives, and I'm particularly interested in how patients and doctors navigate that relationship, how we communicate, how we handle emotional issues, um, how we handle the social things that come around it, uh, around medicine, um, what happens when errors are made, and and how we navigate that. So that's how we function as human beings. Your your most recent book, What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear, is there a, uh, a conflict there, would you say? I mean, well, yeah, I mean, I think there's a huge gap between what patients say and what doctors hear. And I think most patients are quite aware of that. And also vice versa, what doctors say and what patients hear can often be quite different. And often the source of uh, medical error, um, inadequate uh, or non-ideal medical care. So focusing on the communication, uh, I think, is a place where we can mine a lot of improvements in medical care. It sounds like you almost need an interpreter. You do. In some ways, you need an interpreter, a cultural interpreter. Often you need a language interpreter, but very often there's a cultural interpreter. You know, uh, when you talk about taking, a, for example, a, a diuretic or water pill, you know, some patients may think a water pill is nothing in it, so why take it? Um, and I've had come across that, or we don't understand what it means to make a referral to another doctor. I mean, there are many complex things that can get lost in translation. And vice versa, the patient has symptoms they're trying to explain to the doctor, and maybe they can't get it across, or the doctor isn't really listening well. They're busy typing on the computer, and they're missing key elements the patient is telling them. Your uh, book, Singular Intimacies, Becoming a Doctor at Bellevue, can you get into that a little bit and, and what you learned and what you wrote about? Sure. So when I, I trained at Bellevue during the height of the AIDS epidemic in the 90s, and For sure, Bellevue was ground zero for uh, AIDS on the East Coast. And I remember thinking, this is, these are singular times. I mean, these are such intense moments. And I think I'll never again be in the eye of the storm like this. And I recognized that and I thought I should be writing this down, but I couldn't. You know, we were, we were incredibly busy. You know, a patient would die, the bed would fill in five minutes because the stretcher line was six deep in the, in the ER. But I think it was also too close to the emotional bone, just, I think, hard to approach. So after I finished ultimately 10 years of medical school, PhD, and training at Bellevue, 
I decided to take a, a year and a half off just to get away from death and destruction. I mean, patients were dying. They were young. They were our age. They were dying very brutal deaths, and it was just a, a very dark time. So I took a year and a half off, and I to to earn money, I did sort of temp work um, in small towns that were short on doctors. There are agencies that you know help match you to places that need uh, are short on doctors. And then after six or eight weeks, I would travel to South America until the money ran out, and I would call collect from Oaxaca and say, "What do you got?" And I'd end up, you know, New Hampshire, New Mexico, whatever they had next. And it was during those times where there wasn't much to do in these small towns, I began to just sit down and write some of those stories from my medical training. And that was a way to, you know, provide closure, that elusive word, um, or any sort of therapy, but more that I felt that these intense stories, they needed their due. They needed to settle somewhere. And it was hard to move forward until you sort of found a place to process them, to take some time to think about them, turn them over in your head, and, and find a, a place they can settle in your soul. And I titled the book Singular Intimacies because I felt that the relationship that doctors and patients have is singularly intimate. Of course, my friends all thought the book was about French lingerie, but it's not. It's about the really intense... <laughs> intense Maybe just the next doctors. one. <laughs> that would be the next one. And so I, what I learned in, you know, um, in those years is... is and maybe it sounds trite, but every person has an unusual and different and unique story and compelling story. And when you take even just a few minutes to dig in, every patient has an intense drama happening in their life. And you as the doctor, as the nurse, if you take those extra five minutes to find out who this person really is, um, it will help their medical care. It will reward you with this intensely human connection and I think we're better for the patient. I mean, most patients um, feel very anonymous and, and welcome the chance to connect on a more personal level. So just learning the stories of the patients, which, of course, in the end become my own stories of how I developed as a doctor. And my patients really were my professors. Um, you learn a lot from books, but it's really with patients that you learn medicine. And no doubt the patients at Bellevue taught me medicine. Do you think that there are physicians who on purpose don't want to hear those stories because to do so, boy, they, they then they become a very important person in your life and they must be very difficult to deal with because they're in the middle of, you know, sometimes a major uh, emergency and sometimes death. I mean, how do you reconcile that? You're asking, I want to know as much about you as possible. They, in a way, they must almost become like a friend. Right. Well, you know, it's also calibrated. Maybe I don't want to know, don't get to know as much about you as possible. That's, you know, if I, I would need 10 hours of a conversation for that. But to get to know a little bit more, you know, for example, if um, someone's having trouble tr controlling their diabetes, um, you may say, oh, they're not taking their medicine, you know, as, as they should be. But if you find out maybe their housing is unstable and they don't have a consistent place to live and they need a refrigerator for insulin, well, that's a different story. And so, you know, if we don't find that out, we'll never solve the problem. Um, you know, a patient needs to do dressing changes, but if, again, if they don't have a place to stay or, you know, they have such arthritis in their hands, they can't really do the dressing. If we don't dig into that, we'll never know. I'll give you a third example. I had a patient 
who's an, an older gentleman, and every time I saw him, his medications were a mess. He didn't know which pill was for what, the green pill, the blue pill. He would mix them up, and I'd spend an hour sorting out his med list, printing a clean, brand-new med list. I was so proud of myself. It took about a year or two till he confessed to me that he couldn't read. And that's why his medications were mixed up. But until I got to the point where he could trust me to tell me that, and I had a chance to talk to him a bit more, that he grew up in a small town in South America, and he, you know, the school wasn't available. You know, he was working in the field, and he really never learned to read, even in Spanish. And once I knew that, then we could readjust his medical care and the way we gave him his pills, and we could do it by taping the pills on a card and identifying them by color and size to help him take his medicine. And so, so getting to know a patient is not just a nice social thing to do. It's really critical for good medical care. Right. You know, uh, I saw you on, on a YouTube video uh, reading one of your books. But by the way, do you convert all of your books to audio books? Do you do that um, as a rule? It's up to the publisher. Most of them have, are available in audio books. I, I believe almost all of them are. Okay, well, what I saw and what I heard was you were uh, reading a section of, um, I think it's your latest book, but it was about a, uh, a French woman who I guess it was thought that she only had days to live, and she had a request. Do, do you recall that? Yeah, sure. That's the, the opening to Singular Intimacies, mm -hmm. and... It's called Possessing Her Words. And this is a patient who is about to get a breathing tube um, because she is uh, desperate. She's really um, short of breath and she can't breathe on her own. So we only have a few minutes before we have to put this tube down her throat. And once she has a tube in her throat, she's not going to be able to speak in any meaningful way. And we don't know. Her chest X-ray has really uh, progressed. We don't know if it's her lung cancer has come back or this is just pneumonia. And she says to us that I only want seven days on the machine. And if I'm not cured in seven days, just take it out. Now, if she has pneumonia, well, in seven days, ooh, she'd probably get better. But if she has cancer, you know, seven days, if, if cancer is what's making her not able to breathe, seven days is not going to change anything. And then that seventh day would be her last. And she um, asked us to promise her that in seven days, they we take it out no matter what. And I realized as we were intubating her that we're now the possessors, possibly for final words. If she doesn't survive this, if this is her cancer, our interaction, her last request that she gives um, are the last that she will make and that we, we carry these final words to our final days. And the gravity of that was so powerful and awe-inspiring and frankly terrifying. And we had no choice but to be still and wait. And we doctors, we don't do, you know, be still and wait very well. We're always, you know, moving fast, talking fast, ordering tests, doing everything fast. And she really forced us to wait and sort of contemplate what it means to face mortality. And that was terrifying. What happened? Well, I guess I tell you to read the book because that. Um, and that's, that's a good, that's a good answer. That's what that I usually story say. <laughs> continues in the book because otherwise, you know, it doesn't make any sense till you actually read it. So it's a uh, go ahead and read the book. It's the uh, prologue and the epilogue. Okay, great, great uh, comeback. Um, one other question, uh, Dr. Offrey, is that uh, you're an editor at the Bellevue Literary Review. 
Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. You know, we um, when I got back from my travels, I, I really uh, enjoyed the idea of writing, and I wanted to get my students to do some. And so I asked them when they see their patients, just one of their patients each month, to just tell the patient's story. What's it like to have diabetes or high blood pressure, emphysema? And I had a great set of, of student essays, and so did a colleague of mine. And we, we met thinking, they will make sort of a student journal of, of writing. But then we thought, you know, the concept of illness and the vulnerability and fears that come with it is so universal. I mean, even if you're healthy, then it's your elderly parents or your sick children that you always have to face the medical system, and it's very frightening. But most of what we have to deal with that is like, you know, top 10, you know, ways to get calcium in your diet doesn't really address the existential fears. We thought, you know, poetry and fiction are, are in some ways more effective ways to do that. And so we thought we'd form the Bellevue Literary Review, open to the public, and we took out a two-line uh, call for submissions, and we had a 1,000 submissions almost overnight. So we knew we had touched a nerve, and now we've been publishing uh, 18 years. We get 4,000 submissions a year from all walks of life all over the world, looking for the creative ways to sort of interpret how we face our body, our mind, aging, getting um, vulnerable or frail, and how we cope with that. So it's been sort of a sort of creative side. And now Bellevue, we host uh, public readings, open to the public and free twice a year. And so now Bellevue is on the you know, literary circuit. So I like to say, if you ever plan on having a heart attack at a poetry reading, this is the one to have it at. Um, you know, when I was introducing you, I called you a musician. And he said, oh, no, no, I'm not a musician. I'm just practicing. But uh, the cello is very important to you, isn't it? You have it on your website. Uh, tell me why that is. Well, I started cello about 13 years ago. We took a year um, with my family and moved to Costa Rica. And I had uh, a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and I had my third child there. And my four-year-old was about to start kindergarten in the New York City public schools when we returned. And I knew that they had a strings program and she would start violin. So I, of course, thought, well, let's get a head start on that, right? And I found a violin teacher. And I asked the teacher, you know, what's the best way to get a stubborn kid to practice, thinking she's going to say, you know, sticker charts and ice cream. But instead she said, seeing a parent practice. Okay, and I'm very concrete, so I went out and I thought, I won't get a violin because that's the same thing. I'll get a cello, it's sort of next door. So I went out and bought, you know, a cheap cello and took started lessons in Costa Rica. And um, in the beginning it was kind of rough. So every night I put the kids to sleep and I would start practicing so they could you know, see me model my you know, exemplary parental behavior. Plus, I'd serenade them with, you know, beautiful classical music, you know, no cloying baby CDs for us. Of course, the beginning string instrument is pretty rough, and I remember my daughter calling out, do you know any other notes? So I didn't really know any notes except the open strings. But I fell in love. She, after a couple of years, quit the violin, but I found a wonderful teacher when I was back in New York. And there's something that, it's just a, it's a sonorous embrace, the cello. And what I love about it, besides just the music, is that you get to focus um, ever more deeply. So you, you focus on a, a page or on a line of music or a measure or even a single note. And the note doesn't just have to be right because, you know, finding the right note in a string instrument is pretty hard. On a piano, an F sharp it's, a, it's in the same spot every time. You know the F-sharp key, but on a string instrument, you have to find it. And there's no frets. There's no markings. You know you have an F-sharp, 
when your ear tells you, yes, that's an F sharp. So you really have to train your ear. So finding the note is a big deal with a stringed instrument. But even after that, the note doesn't just have to be right. It also has to be beautiful. And beauty, you know, doesn't get a lot of shift in medicine, not a lot of beautiful things in medicine. And, and I think that being able to focus ever more deeply on a single note and on its beauty is the complete opposite of life in the hospital where you know, phones are ringing, pages are going off, and everyone's rushing and running around. And so having the temperamental opposite is really helpful to sort of balance my life. Plus, it's just really fun to do, and you can feel yourself continually growing. And whereas in medicine, after this many years, I may still learn new things, but it, it's somewhat of a plateau. Um, whereas in music, because I have a teacher, it never plateaus. Whenever I get something, he pushes me to the next level. So it's very exhausting, but also exciting. You can get better and better, I would think. that is that part of the – it's a challenge, I would yeah, think. Yeah, and, and, and there's, there's never an end. You can always – I mean – and I guess when I get to Yo-Yo Maslow or someone like that, or Rostropovich, okay, I can rest on my laurels, but that's a long way off. And so you're ever striving. And, and the act of striving itself is exciting because there's a, a you work hard, but there's a gain. You, you get over the, the hump of the first box suite and wow, wow, you got there. Now, look, there's the next one, you know, and so you never get to rest and, 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 and glow for too long. You know, I knew virtually nothing about the uh, cello before uh, talking to you initially, and then, uh, but I began looking into it, and what we want to do uh, as we say goodbye to you, and really to kind of honor your uh, being a guest on Talking Heart Island, is to play a piece called The Swan, which I've been told is one of the uh, top couple of two, three um, uh, songs, if that's how you you uh, call it, uh, and being all New York all the time, uh, as we right. are here, uh, we're going to um, have the ensemble, the Brooklyn Duo, uh, play uh, this, the Swan. So as we say goodbye to you, uh, we're going to be able to hear. And it's a very meaningful piece. It, uh, my first teacher in Costa Rica um, while I was some, you know, getting ready for my lesson, he would often just play that piece. Um, it's a very famous uh, solo and, and, a, and a lovely, wonderful piece by Sanson. Great. A great choice. Thank you very much. And again, thank you for, um, for being our guest today. My pleasure.
Hi, this is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you, in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, simply go to the subscribe page on our website located at www.michaeltkeen.com and enter your email address. If you have any questions about the podcast itself or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean, and we're Talking Heart Island. (laughs) 